0: Great, thank you very much. Our title tonight is The Three Great Abrahamic Faiths Question Mark. And the question mark is at the heart of the title. In a sense, asking, what do we think of that concept? What does it mean to be Abrahamic? Uh, if uh, you, you may have uh, noticed on the news some days back that an American politician by the name of John Kerry uh, had a lar- meeting with uh, a large mostly Muslim group uh, in Washington, and during the course of, uh, of that meeting, he was giving a talk where he was very much wanting to uh, encourage them with the idea of, of the oneness and the, the unity of the religions, and he used this expression uh, and he talked about the, uh, the, uh, the, the context was the, the way in which the Abrahamic faiths each, uh, along with many other religious expressions as well, have their own version of the golden rule. And our first, the first uh, question we're going to be asking tonight and thinking about is just a, an introductory one. How is this expression for the most part used? Uh, well, you might have heard it uh, around, but how do people use it? Firstly, uh, it is used to some degree by some people uh, simply as shorthand in, in terms of categorizing religion. So, in, 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 in religious studies, people will sometimes distinguish between perhaps Eastern religions and Abrahamic religions, or they might call them, rather than Abrahamic religions, the monotheistic religions and so on. And the, by the Abrahamic religions, they mean the, the, the Middle Eastern, Semitic, monotheistic religions. A second way you will hear this phrase uh, being used is in the context, as with John Kerry uh, some days back, of of ecumenism and interfaith dialogue. The idea is often expressed uh, of frustration with the conflicts between Muslims, Christians and Jews on the basis that, deep down, we are all basically really the same. The idea can be that uh, each of these religions has its own founder. So, Moses founded uh, Judaism, Jesus founded Christianity, Muhammad founded Islam. What do we need to do? Well, what we need to do is put aside all those differences And go back to that simpler, purer, original faith of Abraham. That Abrahamic faith. The idea is that that, that Abraham didn't have all these complications of of the law uh, uh, that that Moses brought in and all those sacrifices and all that stuff. Nor did he have all these these depths of theology that, that these Christians have. And all this this thinking about God and the nature of God and the character of God and so on. Abraham, the idea is, simply worshipped God in simplicity. There is God. You bow before him. You obey him. That's all. You don't need more than that. And and if we can only just, just get back to that pure Abrahamic faith, we can put aside all these differences Uh, And so, in that popular usage, they will often seek to show a commonality. Things that we have in common, such as the golden rule. Uh, There there, there are booklets and books and pamphlets published. There are organisations. You can uh, search on the internet and you'll find many of them. The the Abrahamic Faith Peace Initiative and all sorts of other things like that. Often the family model is used. The three religions, well, they're really siblings. You know what brothers and sisters are like? They argue, they squabble. Uh, and what we really need is, is, is some well, some liberal Christian to come along and just to, to tell us all off, really, that we can all get on. There's a third way in which this expression uh, is used. And it's in, in, in the context of Islam. One of the key historical figures in the Quran is Abraham. There's, a, there's an awful lot of, uh, of parts and portions and verses of the Quran about Abraham. On the one hand, there's a desire by some Muslims to show that they are descended. That Arabs are descended from Abraham through Ishmael. Uh, from the perspective of what the Bible tells us about where Ishmael went uh, to, 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 to the Negev, um, that's highly unlikely. And particularly, there's a uh, the book of, the, the non-scriptural book of Jubilees say, suggests that, that Ishmael uh, moved to the Arabian desert in the direction of uh, Baghdad. Uh, and that was certainly the, the popular idea that was picked up, uh, where the idea of the, the name of the Saracens later came from. But even then, it's the wrong half of Arabia for Muhammad to have come from. Uh, uh, And so it's unlikely, and many Muslims would agree, that actually Muhammad was descended from Ishmael. But what the Quran says, in, in many different ways, in a number of different passages, and here's just one example, is this. Say, follow the religion of Abraham the upright. For he was not one of the pagans. Uh, uh, So if you want the reference, Surah 3.95. Follow the religion of Abraham. Now, we've used that word commonality and we will continue to use the word commonality. And there is, isn't there, a, a, a measure of commonality with what we as Christians talk about. To have that faith of Abraham. Uh, we've we've sung a song that sort of gives a similar idea tonight. The God of Abraham praise. We, we're joining with Abraham in praising, praising that same one God. Uh, and this is a key idea of the Quran that each of the prophets was simply calling the people back to a simple devotion and obedience to God. So, God sends a prophet, uh, the people come back to God, to that purity and simplicity of worship of that, that unitarian, that God who is an absolute one, uh, who, who is simply to, to be acknowledged as all-powerful and obeyed. The people come back to God, but then they, they drift away, and so another prophet is sent. And and that long list of many prophets that are, uh, are recorded in the Quran including most uh, of the key Old Testament figures, including as well uh, Jesus himself. And again, similar to what we've already seen, the idea is that uh, all the burdens of the Mosaic law, the complicated theology, of Pauline Christianity, and they, they love that picture, that idea of Christianity, The the gospel came through Jesus, but then Paul messed it all up and corrupted it all, uh, and what we have in the Bible is not the message of Jesus, according to Muslims, but what we have in the Quran is really the Christianity that Paul later developed. And So, strip all that away and we can return to this simple Abrahamic theology of one monadistic view of God. And then, uh, the Muslim view of God for many Muslims, not for all, it does vary a bit, but for many Muslims, this, this idea that God has no character. Uh, if you uh, look at uh, some of the bookshelves here on, on the doctrine of God, there are, there are chapters and chapters and chapters and volumes and volumes about what God is like. Well, in Islam, God is will, God is power, and that's it. That's all you need to know about God. What it means is God can do absolutely anything that he wants to do. There's no, uh, in a sense, there's no character that moulds or directs who he is and what he does. Uh, there's that catechism question, isn't there? Can God do anything? He can do all his holy will. But, but in Islam, God has no character. He can do absolutely anything. He can do good, he can do bad. He's in no way limited in that sense he's purely will and power and there is nothing else we need to know about him uh, and that is why in Islam what we would think of the study of theology isn't the study of theology, it's not a study of God it's the study of Sharia, the study of law, it's the study of how should we live in an ordered religious society together, submitting to God? And so the Islamic understanding is that each of the prophets has been sent to call people back to that pure, simple worship of God. And and here is, in a sense, the danger of that earlier ecumenical idea of, of why don't we all get together around Abraham, because that, that way we can put aside all our differences. Actually, what we're doing in Muslim minds, if we're all becoming, if we were to follow that path, we're all becoming Muslims. Because that's what Islam is. Islam is not, and we need to be understand that Islam isn't about Muhammad. Islam isn't about following Muhammad. No, Islam is about worshipping God and obeying God. And Muhammad is the last, and in a sense the the final, of a long line of prophets calling us to that worship. That's the the Muslim view of of, of prophethood, of what prophets are doing. Therefore, I, I suggest we do need to be careful, be wary, hence the question mark. of of thinking in terms of the Abrahamic religions. There's far more that in which they differ than in which they agree. There is far more contrast than there is commonality. It does leave, though, the question, and we'll come back to this at the end, what does it mean to be Abrahamic? So, the next question, and perhaps the the, uh, main question we're going to be asking tonight is, therefore, how as Christians are we to understand and think about those who are not Christian, if, if, if we're not going to think of, of perhaps Jews, uh, Muslims as being sort of our, 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 our brothers and sister rivals, siblings who we squabble with, how are we to think of other religions? Where do they come from? Uh, how do we deal? Uh, and I think sometimes we have difficulty with this. How do we deal with the fact that in other religions, there are many things on which we can agree? Many things that are commonalities. Well, firstly, just a few definitions. Uh, the word religion, what do we mean? Uh, a definition by uh, uh, someone called, called Roy Klauser. a religious belief is any belief in something or other as divine, where the divine is whatever does not depend on anything else for its existence. So something that, that, that only depends upon itself. That's what a religious belief is. However, I think there's a, uh, and, uh, perhaps a, a better way for us to think of, uh, of what we mean by this word religion. And, th- and the great thing about words is you can choose how you want to define them. Um, and so I, I, I will happily choose to define this word religion the way I, I would like to do that, and I'm quite free to do it. But I would... Recommend a book, uh, and a lot of what i 'm going to say now actually uh, has, has roots in, in reading this book. I think there are some copies on the bookstall by Daniel Strange. For their rock, other religions is not as our rock for their rock is not as our rock. Um, I think a really important book uh, for us to read uh, and to think about in terms of uh, our, of the church as a missionary organization if we're committed to reaching others. Uh, it, it's quite a tough read. If you want a simple introduction, there is this one, Only One Way, which is one of those three views books in which Daniel Strange has also done a similar section. Um, so a different way of defining that word religion is uh, in thinking of religion not as a system of beliefs, but rather on a much more personal level, as that which the heart loves. Uh, As John Frame puts it, a person's religion is that which grips his heart most strongly. So, we're not talking about a religion as some group of beliefs out there. But rather, we're talking about religion as that which grips my heart. So, religion is that which our heart cherishes and adores. Uh, Daniel Strange says, that which human beings believe to be most basic, most ultimate. A key idea that comes out of that is this. Every single person's religion differs. Everybody is different. Uh, uh, I've been recently traveling in the Middle East, uh, in, in Jordan, and, and, and every one of my Muslim friends that I uh, met, when we started talking, one of the first things they would do would start talking about uh, this uh, Islamic state group in Iraq, saying, they're not Muslims. Islam is a religion of peace. Now, I know that many of my Christian friends, when a Muslim says Islam is a religion of peace, if they're polite, they, they raise an eyebrow. If they're not so polite, they'll sort of dive into an argument. No, it's not. Well, actually, it is. For that person who says it is, it is. If that person believes in a religion where there should be peace and desires peace and wants peace, then that is their religion. The fact that there's someone else somewhere else who believes something else has got nothing to do with that individual. And the danger is that when we are communi- communicating with what we can describe as the religious other and as an expression that's used, and others who are not Christian, the danger is that we, we define them, not in according to who they actually are and what they actually believe but in accordance with some preconceived set of ideas and beliefs about what they must believe, because we put this particular label upon them. Out of that religion, that religion of the heart, comes a worldview, a way of looking at the world, a way of thinking of the world. It's how we view and understand the world based upon what our heart cherishes. And then culture... Well, it's, it's the way of life that develops based upon that heart religion and the world view that springs out of it. Now, the, the heart of what I want to say uh, this evening is this. What I would like to suggest, uh, and again, it absolutely comes from, from Dan Strange. And what we'll seek to unpack is that we, the way we should think of other religions, of that religious other, those who are other than ourselves, is of other religions as being an idolatrous human response to divine revelation. So, two halves. Divine revelation and an idolatrous human response. Um, uh, Dan gives a much fuller uh, definition with other aspects uh, I- I- in his book but that's really the heart of it so firstly what do we mean by divine revelation are we suggesting that, that that in the Quran, that Muhammad that there is there divine revelation well the answer there has to be absolutely yes definitely in what way well in in different ways. Firstly, there is general revelation. Muhammad, any religious leader, in fact any person, is living in a world where, as Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, night unto night reveals knowledge. Romans 1 is a key passage, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them since the creation of the world. His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without Excuse, what's it saying? Every single person, every single individual living in the world, whoever they may be, has received revelation from God, that general revelation that shines brightly. God is making himself known in the world in a way that leaves everybody without excuse. Everybody has seen something of God's glory, his, his, his divine nature and power. And it applies to every individual. It also applies, doesn't it, to religious leaders, false religious leaders. Uh, A second area where there is revelation is that image of God. God created us in his image. Who did he create in his image? Well, he created Adam and Eve in his image. And all of humanity. Now, there is the fall. That image is, is, is marred. It is no longer reflecting God's glory in the world as it ought to. But that image of God is still there in every single person. So there is something. Of the image of God. Think about whatever, again, whatever religious leader you want to think about, and there is something of God's image in in them. Perhaps we can think in terms of, of something of of that conscience that God has put. But uh, Paul goes on to say in this in that chapter in Romans one that, uh, that 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 law even written on their hearts from from creation, the the hangover of it. That sense that we are, we are created and made to live in dependence upon God. There is that, that need of God. We're made to worship. It's worked out in all sorts of false ways. But it's still there. Another element where there is we can what we can describe as revelation. Is God's restraining common grace. God by his spirit is at work in all the world. Restraining from sin, uh, and as some would describe it, uh, uh, stirring up and encouraging goodness in that civic sphere. Uh, That's why we see so much that can be described as good in the world. It's because God is at work in society, restraining evil, encouraging good through his common grace. There's another form uh, of, of revelation. Uh, it's something that, uh, that Dan Strange calls reminental revelation. The, the remaining, the remnants of revelation. Think of it, think of this. Adam and his children and his grandchildren, the generations after him. Surely, they would have told again and again and again and again those stories of God, of what God has done. Noah and his children and the generations after him. Imagine those, those, those and they lived quite a long time in those days, imagine those, those, those knights sat together as foreigners around, around the fire in the evening. Tell us again, tell us again about Adam. Tell us again about, 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 about God walking with him in the garden. that memory that original, if you like revelation of God well, it, it, it must it must have, have, have remained and carried on sure, it would have been twisted it would have been besmirched it would have been added to it would have been, it would have been lost in different places and so on So, eventually, yes, in many places that, 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 that original, if you like, theology would have been lost, but it would certainly have been there in the beginning and would, would have been carried on to some degree, particularly in those who loved God, those who are in that godly line. Uh, it's something Jonathan Edwards and others have written about. It's, uh, another word that sometimes can be used uh, in this context uh, uh, that Edwards used is the Prisca Theologia, the ancient Theology is something, it's a word that's also used by, by others outside of the church, uh, thinking uh, in terms of an opposite sort of theology, of occultism and that sort of thing. But certainly Edwards was convinced there was such a, a, a revelation. And it would have fed through into, as, as, as those descendants of Noah ultimately scattered over the face of the earth, it would have fed through into all sorts of, 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 of pagan, religious expression sure the knowledge of God was being lost people were turning away from that worship of the one true God to, to, to worshipping idols and, and all sorts of other things but to some degree in different places there would have been a hangover of it so all those forms of revelation are in existence and will play a role in all sorts of of religious and what we might describe as non-religious religions. But there's one more as well, and this particularly brings us back to, to the concept of these Abrahamic religions. And it's the influence of what we call special revelation. Uh, firstly, there, there is the suggestion, uh, uh, it's not something I have a strong opinion about, but the suggestion that, um, that much of what may have been seen as good that later came out of, of Greek philosophy uh, and other religions may at that time have been partly influenced by the presence of Jewish teachers and of the Hebrew scriptures. Now, I don't know to what extent that is or is not the case, but it's a suggestion that has been made. But there are other contexts where there are religious expressions that are much more obviously the result uh, of a direct rejection to some degree or other, or a direct corruption of special revelation. Uh, uh, my, 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 my personal experience in the Middle East is, is, is with Christianity, uh, traditional Christianity and Islam. Um, my knowledge of, of modern Judaism is very, very limited uh, indeed. But I do understand that to some degree, uh, some parts of modern Judaism are, are an outworking of what was in Jesus' day the movement of the Pharisees that, that became rabbinical Judaism. Uh, And we can see in the Gospels how Jesus viewed and saw that way of thinking, that way of responding to the Old Testament scriptures. They had the scriptures, but it was a wrong response. Uh, Perhaps a a modern uh, example, a reasonably modern example, is Mormonism. They have the Bible, they have the Old Testament scriptures, the New Testament scriptures. Uh, and yet, what do they do? Well, they, they, have a, they, they bring an extra revelation, an extra book, the Book of Mormon, and place it on top. So that they end up with what is an entirely idolatrous and ultimately polytheistic understanding of God. They have special revelation. they got the Bible. But they've corrupted it and turned, uh, turned it into what ultimately it isn't. And uh, so, uh, Islam uh, raises some interesting questions. Where do its origins lie? Where does it come from? Uh, Big debates have been taking place over the last decades amongst Western scholars. Uh, Historically amongst Western scholars, it was seen as largely being uh, influenced uh, from the outside by Judaism. But actually, a lot more recent scholars are strongly suggesting but there was a much stronger influence of Christianity. And that it's even possible that, that Islam started as an anti-Trinitarian Christian sect. And, and there are quite a few good reasons for thinking that. And it was only later that it adopted its identity as a separate religion, moving its heart to Mecca rather than Jerusalem. All these things, all these different forms of of revelation come together. Uh, uh, Islam, you will find many, many, many things that are taken straight from from Jewish scriptures or, or from Christian teachings. All these things come together to mean that in different degrees, in different religious perspectives, there will always be some elements of commonality things on which we can say, oh, I agree with that. When your Muslim neighbor says, to you know, Islam is a religion of peace. We believe in peace. You don't need to respond by saying, no, no, it's not. But look what's going on over there. No, you can simply say, well, that's great to hear you say that. Because our Lord Jesus, he teaches that there should be peace. But actually he teaches that he is that peace. The second half, that's the first half. The second half is this, the idolatrous human response. There's, there's divine revelation, but then there's the idolatrous human response. Romans 1, Paul makes clear that though God's revelation is clear so that people with, are without excuse, yet it has been twisted. So verse 18, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Verse 25, they exchange the truth of God a lie. So there are elements of that which is true, but so mixed up with error that there is ultimately no real truth. Let's say that again. There are elements of that which is true, but they are so mixed up with error that ultimately there is no real truth it means that you can sit with a friend and they will say something you can pick on an aspect of and agree with. But ultimately, you'll find quickly there are many other aspects of that which which you can't agree with at all because it's so intermixed. Uh, And the result is an idolatrous creation so that what is worshipped, loved and believed in is not God as he reveals himself, but an idolatrous human response, an idolatrous human creation. They changed, Romans one twenty three. they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, uh, and so on. Uh, Dan Strange again, make clear that through the Old Testament, idolatry is the key concept for understanding that religious other. Isaiah 42.8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. It is something other than God, as he reveals himself to be, that is worshipped. Therefore, God is deprived, is stripped of his glory. Idolatry is a distortion of God's truth. It can be thought of as a counterfeit, a false version. It looks like the truth, but it's not the truth. Uh, We've already suggested the heart of man needs something to worship, something to adore. And so if they have turned away from the living God, they will create in their hearts some form of counterfeit. Some form of idolatrous distortion of God. As Paul says, Romans one twenty-five, they will find something within the creation to worship. And that's what, why the things we are saying here, they don't just apply to religions and religious expressions, as in uh, depending upon a God of some sort. But it's true of every single person. Every single person has that need to, 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 to worship. And find some other idols to, to take the place of God. So those are the, the two halves, the two different sides. Divine revelation. And that's the reason we see in, in, in religions, we see things we can agree with sometimes. We see commonality, things that are Similar. But there is the corruption, there is that idolatrous human response. And that's why the the, the main connection is that contrast, that, that huge and vast difference. But before moving on, just two other elements to bear in mind, just to be aware of. Firstly, we mustn't forget the involvement of demons of spiritual forces of evil. Simply to say, the powers of darkness are actively involved. Ephesians two two, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. The devil and his, his forces are at work. Where, where is all this deceit coming from? Where is all this corruption, these lies coming from? Well, they're coming from the human heart but they're encouraged and they're stirred up by those forces of evil. Now, exactly what that looks like behind the scenes in that spiritual realm, well, I don't know. And the simple reason is that scripture doesn't tell us very clearly exactly how those spiritual forces behind the scenes work. But that they are working is absolutely certain. And therefore, in all forms of religious, false religious expression, the devil, those forces of evil, are in different ways at work. But there's the other side. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Ultimately, all that takes place in this world is by the will and purpose of God. Muhammad arose, Islam started because God allowed it. Because it is part of God's purpose and plan. Now, here's the difficulty. How do you put all those things together? To what extent is is one more important is one bigger. What are the, the, the relative roles? Well, that's part of the, 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 the difficulty. In a sense, we can't know that. All expressions, even of false religion in the world, are under God's sovereign power. Now, the suggestion has been made by some over, over many years that Islam itself is a, is, is a form of a counterfeit of Christianity. that God raised Islam up as a form of judgment upon the church. Similar to what God said to Habakkuk. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. Uh, The idea that God raised up Islam, perhaps, I don't know, I'm not suggesting that's the way it is, I don't know can't enter into the purposes of God but the suggestion that God might have done it perhaps we might, might may I say, well, we might be astounded shocked at the idea but that's what God says here to Habakkuk and Habakkuk's response you, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness why do you look on those who deal traitor how, how can you raise up that evil nation how can you use them and work through them well, for his greater glory and purposes. So, uh, just to summarise, those two key elements: divine revelation, that idolatrous human response. How are we to respond, therefore, to that religious other, which is which is such a mixture? of commonality and contrast how, how are we to engage and interact with them and at the heart of this question is, is, is a very simple question how are we to reach them and win them for Christ you see when we think of the religious other the danger is it's sort of it is them out there the enemy they're not they are our future brothers and sisters in Christ who we long to win for him. Uh, We are to love them. Uh, I, I sometimes feel, I worry about this, I'm not sure that the way we think about Islam in this country has got a lot more to do with paranoia and fear than it has a love and longing that they should come to know Christ and that the Muslim world be one for Christ. Uh, Is there not a danger sometimes that we're we're almost more concerned about defending our western secular society and culture, this humanistic society we live in, than we are about winning others to Christ? I don't know. It's it's something that I struggle with. So how are we to respond to our releases? Well, uh, again, I come back to Daniel Strange. Uh, a, a phrase that he uses, if you, if you don't like it, if you would prefer to use a different phrase, that's great. Um, but the phrase that he uses is subversive fulfilment. Subversive fulfilment. Uh, now, it took me a while to work that round in my mind, exactly what he's saying there. But it brings together, I think, these two sides of the commonalities, the things we have in common, the things that we can suddenly say, oh, we agree on that and the contrasts those things where, where we differ there is a fulfilment, so the, the, the phrase is a subversive fulfilment there is fulfilment where there is an area of commonality so, so when that person says Islam's a religion of peace, we can say that, that's amazing the Lord Jesus was always talking about the importance of peace. That he's come to bring peace. That uh, in him, we can have peace with God. Uh, do you see what's happening? You're grabbing onto something where there's commonality. And through it, ultimately, you're pointing them to Christ. There's, there's, there's a form of fulfilment there coming to him. Uh, there there, there may be those needs those longings those, those heart's desires that just aren't being met and you can point them to Christ and there is fulfilment however fundamentally there is contrast and in those core key areas there are deep rooted contradictions between the truth of Christ and the counterfeit of that other and this is where subversion is called for those false views need to be challenged, need to be subverted. So, whether on, it's, it's on a more personal level, seeking to reach a non-Christian neighbour, or perhaps as a church together, desiring to reach out to a community close by. How do we go about it? Well, it means building relationships. It means getting to know people the heart of winning people to Christ involves getting to know people. Ultimately, there is going to be no evangelism where there is no relationship. And building relationships and remembering what we've said about that heart religion means beginning by asking a lot of questions. Because that, that neighbor you're getting to know, what do they believe? What is their heart religion? You can't just say, well, they're, they're a, uh, they're a, they're a humanist or they're, they're a Muslim, therefore I know what they believe. No, you don't. We don't, do we? No, we need to get to know them, we need to ask them. So, in a sense, the, the, the heart of the beginning of evangelism is always going to involve asking a lot of questions. In a friendly way to build that relationship, to get to know them. What is their worldview? What do they believe? What is their, their heart's religion? What is they, they're passionate about? Uh, it's one of those challenges that we face, perhaps sometimes in, even in reaching the young people of our churches. Where are their hearts? What, how do we communicate with them? What are where are those commonalities that we can, can pick up on? that we can gently commend? Where are the contrasts that we will have to learn to to work out how to challenge, to subvert? Uh, An article by uh, Chris Flint uh, taking up this idea of subversive fulfilment suggests three steps. Firstly, affirm that deeper truth where there is commonality. Affirm it. When they say something that you can sort of agree on, jump on it. Agree with them. Say, that's great. Expose the distortion. Help them to see where the the, the, the truth has been uh, suppressed and twisted. And then evangelize them by demonstrating that it's the gospel alone that offers true satisfaction. Uh, And again, it's not just a personal method, it is that of evangelism, but it's it's also how the church as a community should think of its witness and testimony. There must always be, as as Strange puts it, uh, an ecclesiological angle with the church embodying the sort of life, the religious other, longs for it means basically others should look at your church community life the way you are as a church together and say wow that's what I long for that's that's the ideal what's going on there where's that coming from this is how we are to think uh, of the religious other to respond to them with the gospel of Christ so uh, coming back to our original question, therefore, what does it mean to be Abrahamic? Uh, remember that discussion of Jesus with uh, the Pharisees in John chapter eight. Uh, There's the claim of the Jews in, in verse thirty-three: "We are Abraham's descendants." Uh, Jesus makes clear that it's not physical descent from Abraham that matters it's sharing in that same faith that Abraham had might I, might I dare say and point to that commonality in that idea with, with the way that Muslims talk about Abraham, that faith of Abraham but what is at the heart of Abraham's faith, have, have Muslims got it right there does, does Abraham have that simple, pure faith of a monadistic God? Just bow down and worship between this all, before this all-powerful God. Uh, uh, nothing more to get to know. What is at the heart of Abraham's faith? Well, it's to glory and rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 56, your father Abraham, Jesus says, rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Ultimately, the promise of God to Abraham in Genesis twenty-two eighteen, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, is a pointer forward to Christ. Galatians 3.16 makes clear that this promise looks forward to Christ. And it seems clear from what Jesus says that, that Abraham himself understood that. The faith of Abraham, which we share, is a faith that rejoices in Jesus Christ. That is why Judaism, for instance, Islam, are not truly Abrahamic religions. Now, obviously, they can choose to to call themselves what they like. But in this true sense, they're not Abrahamic religions. But perhaps we can go a little bit further. What I would like to suggest is this, that actually it's not just that Abraham looked forward to Christ in the sense of of, of some sort of salvation that was coming, but that he actually looked forward to Christ. That he actually looked forward to the coming of that everlasting son, the Christ. Christ. What I would like to suggest is actually that Abraham and other godly figures in the Old Testament may have had a much better understanding of Trinitarian theology than we sometimes uh, give them credit for. Uh, There's... uh, um, uh, the, the appendix of this book by Steve Levy by uh, Paul Blackham I know there has been I understand a little bit of controversy about it uh, uh, so uh, read it with care but it's a, it's a long I understand again it's a, it's a, it's a long term held understanding uh, by, by many Christians that actually godly people in the Old Testament had a good understanding to some degree of who God is when Abraham met the angel of the Lord it's not just that we today contentatively read back a possible pre-incarnational appearance of the son is it not possible that Abraham himself had some knowledge and understanding of that trinitarian relationship how well did Abraham know his God. How much, uh, in a sense, is what we're asking, how much did God reveal of himself to Abraham? Because what, what we, we, is suggested to us in, in, in John chapter 8 is that actually there was quite a lot. Let's go back and think of perhaps even about Adam. Adam, without a shadow of a doubt, knew far more about God than we are told he knew in the beginning of Genesis. Because we're pretty much not told very much about what he knew. He certainly knew more than we're told. In those, in those years that followed, when uh, Adam was telling uh, his children and grandchildren those stories of the garden, what God had done, and walking with God in the garden, how God had created the earth and so on. And when he explained about the Spirit of God over the, uh, 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 over the waters, they said, Wait, wait, wait what, what, who's that Spirit? What does that mean? Surely Adam must have had some knowledge and understanding of that. Surely he didn't just say, I don't know, really. You know, I tell it, but I don't know what it's all about. One day people will know, maybe. No, surely he must have had some understanding. So the suggestion is that actually those who were godly people, someone like Enoch perhaps, what does it mean where it says he walked with God? And he was not, for God took him. How well did he know God? I don't know. Wouldn't it be lovely if we could could read his diaries? Uh, Although the fact that they lived quite a long time might mean uh, it would take quite a long time. But that vision of God, not just as as a monadistic Yahweh, but as Yahweh in heaven, that angel of the Lord who comes to us and visits us, that spirit of God who is there. How much did those godly people of the Old Testament know? Well, I, I would like to suggest, and it's something I need to think through further myself, that actually more than we can sometimes give them credit for, It's not just a matter of us being able to read back into hints in the Old Testament. But it seems in the New Testament the Lord Jesus rebuked people for not interpreting those hints, not understanding those things. The way the New Testament interprets the Old suggests that actually they did know more than some give them credit for. So can we say that to be Abrahamic is not just to rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ but is actually to rejoice in God in Trinity to actually have a true Trinitarian faith So, in closing uh, just a few practical considerations firstly that idolatrous twisting of truth should grieve our hearts because God is dishonoured should bring us to prayer to cry out, glorify your name, glorify your name in all the earth. Secondly, we should have a passion and commitment to reach those outside of Christ with the gospel. We we should be, not in a negative way, but driven to mission, drawn, if you like, to mission, By that love of Christ within us. To ask that practical question. What would it mean for me, for you and your local church. To reach those communities around you. With the gospel. As we preach Christ thirdly, thirdly. to proclaim a bold vision of God in Trinity is a temptation, I, and I know this. when people talk to Muslims, we don't want to offend them. We don't want to sort of stop the relationship at the beginning. So sort of don't talk too much about Trinity and, and the Son of God and that sort of thing. Come on to that a bit later. No. We preach Christ. We preach the glory of Christ. We exalt Christ. We preach the Christ and Him crucified. Let us lift Him up. Let us have confidence. There is nothing that will impress a Muslim more than someone who has boldness and confidence. They will be scornful of somebody who seems to be a bit ashamed of their beliefs. And let us seek to put that principle of subversive fulfilment into practice in our own evangelism. Let us seek to get to know people to seek out those areas of commonality that that can draw them, to seek out those areas of contrast that we need to challenge and how to bring them to that gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.